Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for tuning in to the AccuWeather podcast this week. I'm your host, Regina Miller. I'm joined in the studio by Andy Robb. Hi, Andy. Hi, Regina. How are you this week? Good. I'm great this week. In fact, I've learned an awful lot. My head's about to explode with all the information that I got from our own Evan Myers this week. Yes, an incredible <laughs> story that we teased last week. We're going to be talking, of course, about the, the great storm, as they call it, that uh, devastated Galveston, Texas in 1900. Right. He's going to tell us about that storm when it came on shore you know, what information they lacked. It took them by surprise. And we're going to uh, hear also uh, an update on uh, the tropics with our own Dan Ketlowski to find out if there's any storms a-brewing there. So we're going to be talking about that coming up. Stay tuned. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather Podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller. Well, for this week's episode, I'm joined in the studio by Evan Myers. He's our Senior Vice President and CEO at AccuWeather. Thanks for uh, sitting down with me today, Evan. It's been a long time since I've sat in front of a microphone like this without anybody watching me on video. Oh, I, really? I, I, for 25 years, I did uh, radio broadcasts every day uh, to about 25 different radio stations. Uh, someone estimated that I did close to uh, somewhere between a half a million and a million individual radio broadcasts. Now, the microphone I'm looking at is a lot more newfangled than the ones I used to use. <laughs> it had a little a little foam thing on the end of it. This is, uh, th- this is just high technology, so yeah. it's, it's kind of cool. I <laughs> but appreciate this is, it. This is nothing new to you, though. So. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, not a, yeah. Not at this all. is going back to your roots. That's right. <laughs> right. So, well, what we're sitting here uh, today to talk about, uh, Evan, is uh, the 1900... They call it the Great Hurricane of Galveston, correct? Well, there's a whole different uh, a bunch of names for it. The folks in Galveston do, Galveston do call it the Great Hurricane. Or it's the Hurricane of 1900. It's interesting because uh, it's one of the first meteorological events that I can remember that I, I, I got interested in and got interested in the weather. Uh, there's a book uh, by a, a, a professor at Texas A&M University, uh, John Edward Weems, who wrote the book, I think in the early 50s, called A Weekend in September, and it's about the great Galveston storm of 1900, and reading that really was very amazing to me. There's been a number of storms, uh, a number of stories, rather, written, a number of books about the Galveston storm since then, a very popular one, Isaac Storm, written by Eric Larson, who's written a bunch of different uh, uh, books, very popular books, but that one uh, is about the storm as well. So, And I heard uh, Isaac Storm, uh, which we're going to kind of break down absolutely. the mistakes and the things that maybe they couldn't have known uh, coming up. But let's talk about first the ingredients that, that made up this storm. Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, at the time of the storm in, in 1900, uh, Galveston was, I think, believe the fourth largest city in Texas. It was the number one port in Texas. 
It was located uh, on a sandbar, basically, in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So anyone that's familiar with East Coast beaches, uh, Cape Hatteras, uh, the New Jersey shoreline, uh, knows that a lot of those popular resorts are basically on a very thin strip of sand that sit out in front of a bay. It's kind of like the Outer Banks would be it, it's, in it's the e Carolinas, it, right? It's exactly the same type of thing. So you have a sandbar essentially sitting in the middle of the ocean, or in this case, the Gulf of Mexico. But it was the main port uh, for r really the Southwest. It was uh, uh, a lot of uh, finance there. I believe that at the time, uh, the per capita income of Galveston was the highest in the country. Wow. Uh, the Strand, which is where all the businesses were in Galveston, was the Wall Street of the Southwest. That's what it was called. So it was, a, it was an amazing story where it was built. It was a booming town of uh, almost 40,000 people. Uh, and... Uh, but it was located in the wrong place. Well, and from what I um, understand on kind of researching the storm is the things that made it great for shipping at the time were exactly the things that made it dangerous for a hurricane like this coming in, correct? Well, many many uh, boats at the time, many ships at the time, d didn't have the same kind of depth in the water as, as ships do now. And uh, so you didn't need the you could you didn't really need the kind of depth uh, for a ship channel or things like that. You could just come in at a very low draft. Uh, uh, the bottom of the of the water didn't really need to be that deep. And so behind the barrier island in what would be considered the back bay mm -hmm. uh, is where the is actually where the docks were and the port was. So it was easy to get right into the Gulf. You didn't have to go very far. And uh, there were a lot of places back there that were somewhat protected by the barrier island but at the same time uh they just uh it was just too vulnerable to what was going to happen right because the continental shelf was pretty well, shallow well there's area. so many different things that went into uh in, into the disaster and probably we ought to talk about that and and set the stage so as we said galveston was the one of the largest cities in texas almost forty thousand people and uh the disaster that occurred by the September 1900 storm is still the greatest natural disaster in U.S. history. The estimates are six to 12,000 people were killed, most of them in Galveston, and uh, 8,000 is, uh, is the kind of accepted number. But overall, it's, uh, it's just an amazing story. The whole city of Galveston was virtually destroyed. There were something like 3,500 structures, every single structure, every single building in the city of Galveston had some kind of damage, and at least half of them were totally destroyed. Some of them weren't even there anymore. They were just swept away. So that was what happened. So how did that happen? Right. What, what, led to, right. what led to that kind of disaster? Why were the people still there when the hurricane hit, and why was it so bad? So I think it's a combination of a bunch of different things. Nature, nationalism, which we'll get to, just hubris. We know everything, so there's no reason to, to doubt what we know. And just simply bad luck as far as uh, what had happened before. So you had mentioned uh, the, the floor of the, the Gulf of Mexico or, or where the bottom of the water is. And leading up to Texas, uh, it's fairly shallow. So if you have any kind of a storm plowing along in the water, it's pushing water out ahead of it. Well, if the bottom of the uh, the floor of the uh, of the body of water, the floor of the Gulf rises pretty rapidly, there's no place for that water to go except up. And as it pushes onto land, there's no place for it to go except sweep across whatever uh, portion of land it's coming at. And in this case, the highest point in Galveston Island, I believe, was about six feet prior to the storm. Six mm -hmm. feet. 
And so uh, the 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 uh, storm surge was at least twelve feet high. So the entire wow. So above sea level, six. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So so the entire island was swept across, and there were some sand dunes there, as you might see in the Outer Banks mm-hmm. or some of the New Jersey beaches. But they were had all been taken away. They had there were some low spots in the island. So as the city was developed, they took all those sand dunes away and filled in the land. So basically, it was. The water, and then it was flat right into town. And there had been no major hurricane strike for at least 25 years. And the hurricanes that had struck before that, before the mid-1870s, didn't strike Galveston directly. And so they had minor flooding and uh, just didn't think that anything could happen to them. That was kind of, I guess, maybe the hubris. The nature was the intensity of the storm. And the nationalism was the fact that uh, the United States chose to ignore the best hurricane forecasters in the world at the time, which was the uh, Cuban Meteorological Office. And uh, they thought that the hurricane was coming and mm-hmm. were warning folks ahead of it. But the uh, the United States government, through bureaucracy and other things, decided not to heed their warnings that they were wrong and, in fact, blocked the information the Cuban Weather Service was, was handing out uh, to uh, the United States and the rest of the world that the storm was actually coming there. So Wow. So it. So let's talk about the storm development because it kind of skirted near Cuba. But how how did this play out? So so it formed south of Cuba uh, as a as a weaker storm moved across Cuba. I think it may have been a minimal hurricane at the time. It kind of moved northward across Cuba toward the Keys, toward the Florida Keys. And at that point, the National Weather Service, uh, the, the National Weather Bureau at the time, felt that it was, had curved northward. It was the, the Keys were hit pretty hard, and so were, was southeastern Florida, present-day Miami and, and uh, Palm Beach and, so, and those places, which weren't really much of uh, population centers in, around 1900. They were hit pretty hard, and so the National Weather Bureau thought that, in fact, had recurved, as storms often do, and it headed across South Florida and out to sea. The Cubans, however, felt that it, the, because of the synoptic or the weather map, as we might talk about, there was a big high-pressure area that was sitting over the eastern part of the country, the United States, and they felt that that was actually going to shove the storm westward. It was not going to move directly into that high-pressure area. It could get pushed to the west, and which, in fact, it did do, and that is what they were warning about. And generally, uh, when you have a large high-pressure area north of a, of any kind of tropical system, it helps spin it up more. And so that actually helped the storm intensify fairly rapidly as it moved across the Gulf and headed directly to the Texas coast. And the interesting thing about those kind of storms and that part of the, uh, of the, uh, the geography is that if you look at the eastern seaboard, the eastern seaboard runs parallel generally to the track of tropical systems. Mm-hmm. So you don't get a direct blow. One, uh, that's why Sandy was so unusual, because it moved out and then curved right back and hit. Right. hit. But most storms don't do that. And on the Texas Gulf Coast, it's different. So perpendicular. This, they perpendicular. They come smashing right mm-hmm. in and with pushing all that water ahead of it, as we mentioned, because of the, the shallow floor of the, uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. And it's interesting because if you look at a map, and I, 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 I have a map right here. <laughs> you can't see it. But I have a map right here. But if you look at the, the Texas coast from about just south of Galveston all the way down to Brownsville, there's virtually nothing on the Texas coast. And that's because various hurricanes have, over time, totally destroyed towns and cities and and communities along the whole Texas coast there. And through that kind of uh, 
memory that the folks have had, nobody's located there. There's only a few places. There's uh, Corpus Christi, which is actually inland a little bit, sits on the other side of the bay and up on a bluff, so it's naturally protected. But if you take a look at a map, there's virtually no towns or cities there because they didn't bother to rebuild. Well, they didn't. There was a town called Indianola, which was uh, down the, which was actually uh, in the uh, mid 1870s, 1880s, was competing with Galveston to be the main port in in Texas. Was destroyed by two hurricanes in the uh, actually within about a month apart uh, in 1886, I think it was, and they just left. The people didn't they didn't right. rebuild the whole town was destroyed twice well the second time there's really not much left there because mm-hmm. that, that had occurred a month before but they they evacuated there's nothing there now there's a stone marker that said that there used to be a town here a town, <laughs> and the remains of the town are actually now sitting in the bay in front of it matagorda get bay just because of erosion and so on over time but the folks in galveston knew that had happened because that was their main competition but yet they chose to ignore it in fact the head of the National Weather Service, National Weather Bureau, Isaac Klein, in the Galveston office, wrote an editorial in one of the Galveston newspapers about 10 years before 1900 saying that that could never happen oh, in, in how, Galveston. Oh, my goodness. How Based interesting. Based on nothing. Other right. Than, so, so, an opinion. It was basically opinion. It wasn't based on science. It was. Right. And so, um, you know, you can label it stupidity or whatever, but it wasn't that it was an earlier age when people didn't understand the science. Yes, it was pretty evident, but they folks there chose to ignore it for whatever reason. Investment, who knows what. Just a reminder, we are speaking with Evan Myers from AccuWeather. He's talking to us about the storm that destroyed Galveston, the great hurricane in 1900. Also, we want to remind you uh, to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Go ahead, make a review and a suggestion for us for future topics. Well, let's talk about when the storm... Uh, came on shore and kind of the story to when it came on and why it was such a surprise. I know, obviously, their techniques for forecasting this, you know, were more limited. It was 1900. But but tell me that scenario about when it came on shore and why they were so surprised. Uh, as I said, the Cubans knew it was coming and they kept putting out information. But the uh, folks in Washington wouldn't disseminate that information. And in fact, uh, the the head of the Department of Commerce uh, that the Weather Bureau reported to put out a directive that said that actually no local office could issue any kind of warnings or watches of any kind unless they got it cleared for any storms, unless they got it cleared in Washington, D.C. So the bureaucracy. So that that was one thing. Well, they wanted closer control and they didn't want anybody to listen to what the what the Cubans had to say about it. So that that was one issue. So they also didn't want terms like tornado or hurricane used. They thought that might scare people. Um, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> or <because> inform them. <laughs> well, well, we've heard we've heard those same types of uh, of situations today. Uh, that uh, you know, can people handle this? It, that's why folks at AccuWeather have always uh, talked about give the information, tell the truth. People are smart enough to figure it out. Right. Don't withhold any information. This is not some other country. This is the United States. This is where we're supposed to share information. So the storm was plowing through the Gulf of Mexico, headed right toward uh, toward Galveston. And uh, w- what happened was, uh, really, it wasn't uh, until maybe a day before the storm hit that it became evident by observers of the weather, not most folks because they hadn't experienced a hurricane right. before. No hurricane had Galveston uh, for the previous 25 years. So most of the people there, as the town grew, had no idea what was going on. But 
people that understood the way the, the water was getting pushed up first on the beach and then inland a little, little bit and the clouds and so on, that something bad was, was coming that way. And that's when uh, they, they first started to warn uh, folks. They put up the hurricane flag so that you could, you know, the hurricane was coming. There's a story that was perpetuated by Isaac Klein, the head of the Weather Service in, in Galveston, that the day before he was ru- running up and down the beach telling people to evacuate. It's interesting because no one there can corroborate that story at the time. He wrote that in a memoir. So you think that could have possibly been him trying to save face afterwards? Yes, that's what most people think. So he's the only, but he, so he said that. But uh, the interesting thing is, once the water uh, got pushed up and cut off uh, the bridges to the mainland, and uh, those were wooden bridges and they they easily got destroyed, the people were trapped. They had no place to go. And that's why so many people were killed. Uh, when you think about the population of about 38,000, as many as 12,000 of the people that live there, uh, you know, almost a third of the people who lived in that in that city, the fourth largest in Texas, were killed was because of the sheer force of the water. And uh, that's what occurred. The, the, the water just uh, started battering the houses closer to uh, to the coast. Uh, you started to use that as, as a debris field to batter the ones further inland. And as I said, no structure was left uh, left unharmed. And uh, some of the stories that were told are very similar to uh, some of the survivor stories from Katrina. The, the structures they were in were totally battered. People were hanging on to your life to pieces of their houses. They were swept out in the Gulf of Mexico and then kind of swept back in again. And that's what, that's what occurred in, in Galveston. It was just a devastating storm. And because of communication at the time, once the storm left, most people didn't, for a couple of days, didn't understand the real destruction and loss of life that occurred in Galveston. There was really no way for folks to get there. Uh, the, all the train tracks had been washed out, telegraph lines, and it took a couple of days. They sent people out from Galveston as best they could to other towns to where there's a telegraph office still working to To let about them know how bad it was. And send help. And, and, and help arrived, but it took a while. And really what, what occurred after that, after the Indianola situation and then in Galveston, is that, that brought the ascendancy of Houston. Houston became the, the main port for Texas because it was much farther inland. They dug a ship canal, and Houston took over as the main city because at the time, Galveston was a much bigger city than Houston in 1900. Wow. And I think, um, you know, the one thing I talked to you about this uh, last week when we were just kind of getting ready to do this podcast and you had mentioned about the seawall that was created afterwards. Did they ever consider and we'll talk about that in a second, but did they ever consider a seawall before that? Yes. In fact, there was a seawall that had been proposed several times before that because of the fact that, you know, I said the island was flat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea was to construct a 10-foot seawall, but there were people that either the, the government, uh, the, the people that had some money didn't want to pay for it. In fact, the National Weather Service, Isaac Klein, they said there was no, no need for that. After the storm, a seawall was built uh, that sits, sits, I think, about 17 feet from the, from the, uh, the, from the beach. Up. I've stood on that seawall and looked out in the Gulf. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So what they did was they uh, an amazing feat of engineering is they they dredged up sand and they pumped up the island closer to the uh, to the to the gulf 17 feet and then it kind of sloped backward but they increased the height of the island by at least 10 feet all the way around so f- going from wow. 0 
to about three feet, and now sits anywhere, from, well, it sits even higher now from 10 to 17 feet. Then there was another hurricane that hit Galveston in 1915 that didn't result in the, the same type of destruction, but still a lot of damage and some deaths, and they actually increased other parts of the island even higher. So uh, it's a totally different landscape now than it was in 1900. You can stand on the seawall, and you're way high above the Gulf and look down, and there's a little beach there. But at the time, it, it was flat. You're, there was It was beach and then, then houses. Wow. And I, I can't imagine how they even did that with pumping up the island. You had all these existing, any remaining existing buildings. Well, there's interesting pictures that show that, uh, well, since every building was somewhat damaged, there were some that were in okay shape. What they did was they jacked the houses up. They put them up on, uh, on stilts. Wow. And they pumped the sand underneath. Wow. Wow. I can't even imagine that undertaking. So that's pretty incredible uh, uh, feats there um, for, for them to even do that. Now, how long did it take for Galveston to recover from this? And then I just wondered about the changes. So the seawall we know about, they, they pumped up the island. How long did all this process take? Well, you can almost say that Galveston never recovered from this standpoint. It was the economic center of Texas and really that whole part of the country. And it, it once it, would, it relinquished that, it, it never recovered. So the population was about 38,000 uh, going into September 1900. I think it stands at about 45,000 today. It, 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 it never fully recovered from a standpoint of prosperity and, and economics and its place uh, in, the, uh, in the state of Texas and so on. It really uh, took a number of years, probably at least a decade, to get it, the island all uh, raised as far as its elevation is concerned. But it has been prone to other hurricanes. The one I mentioned in, in uh, 1915, there have been other hurricanes more recently that have affected Galveston. And I think people are wary. They are wary, I don't think. I know they're yes. wary moving all up and down the Texas coast because not many people do. In fact, the uh, South Padre Island National uh, Seashore that extends from Brownsville all the way up uh, toward uh, the Corpus Christi area is uh, the, no one lives there. I mean, it, you go there as a seashore, but it's there's no towns. There's there's nothing like that at all because of the people have learned that storms coming out of the Gulf of Mexico hitting the coast perpendicularly there in Texas can be among the most devastating natural disasters on the planet, and mm -hmm. people don't live there because of that. It's mm -hmm. kind it's kind of interesting that collective memory. Uh, has stayed with us because mm -hmm. oftentimes the collective memories disappear. Right. Now, uh, uh, going forward, I'm just curious, could something like this happen again on the Texas coast? Well, sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was, um, I can't remember which hurricane it was, uh, it struck just north of Galveston. Uh, and uh, the, the Galveston, is, as I said, on this uh, kind of uh, island uh, sandbar that sticks out uh, into the Gulf. Directly on the other side of Galveston Bay is the Bolivar Peninsula, which is essentially the same type of thing. Uh, much smaller community, and uh, that was almost totally destroyed by a hurricane about 10 years ago. Uh, many less folks living there, but they were all evacuated. mandatory evacuation. See, those are the types of things. Information dissemination. Well, it's information, and those are the types of things that didn't occur back in those days. There were, was no mandatory evacuation. There was nothing like that, and by the time uh, the folks knew that it was coming. It was too late to get out anyway. All the connections uh, to the mainland had been destroyed. So nowadays, people get out of harm's way when they have notification. Now, we saw what happened with uh, Katrina. Almost 1,800 people died because of Katrina, uh, even though uh, 
a lot of folks knew that it was coming and how the kind of some parts of the evacuation weren't handled as well. And look what happened with Maria. Maria is a very similar, in Puerto Rico, is a very similar situation to what happened with the 1900 storm. The storm went just to the south and then right over the island, just like it did with Galveston. And the worst side of the storm is generally the north and, and east side. And so that's what hit Galveston, and that's what hit, hit Puerto Rico. Now, obviously, uh, Puerto Rico was in a different situation because it, it had elevation. It wasn't the, right, the it whole wasn't island. Right, it wasn't But still, when you look at the pictures and, and the destruction, so those kind of destructive hurricanes can occur and will occur. Uh, again, not just in the United States, but in other places in the world. And you have to be prepared. You have to have the information. And you have to listen and uh, get out when you can get out. And right. some, some folks don't want to do that, and uh, they do that at their peril. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that it was interesting when you were talking, if you haven't visited the Galveston area, I think it's interesting to take a look at Google Maps and kind of see how that seawall is and how that's all set up and how there's not really anything to the south of it. It's it's very interesting to see. People really need to be mindful of the effects of, of this, uh, not just the hurricane, but these kind of uh, situations. Uh, hurricane Harvey nearby in Houston, uh, mainly was a was a tremendous rain event. It wasn't didn't have much of uh, the same kind of storm surge, which is what swept over Galveston Island and then inland somewhat. Uh, but they had all that rain. But they had built on the floodplain, on areas uh, uh, parts of uh, Houston is a swamp. Uh, parts of the area near Galveston inland is a swamp, mm-hmm. and uh, nature likes to reclaim what it what is nature's and. Uh, that's why uh, there was such a flooding destruction there. But my understanding is that already they're looking, because there's so many people that live there, they're looking at building again in places where they shouldn't. And uh, we all ha- always have to be mindful of what nature can do and the impact it can have. And I think that the folks, that's, if there's any lesson from what happened in 1900, it's that we should do that. Uh, the folks weren't mindful in 1900 of what had happened just down the coast at Indianola and other places on the coast, and uh, th- they suffered because of that. And in other places, even uh, with Katrina in in New Orleans, uh, building in places uh, where they shouldn't or not being properly prepared, and, and in Houston with Harvey, and there'll be other places like that. You have to be mindful and think about what's possible and plan for it and prepare for it. That, that should be our takeaway, our lesson from Right. right. Well, it's always interesting to talk to you. You know, you know a lot about uh, historical weather and, you know, they say what we don't learn from when we don't learn from our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Absolutely. So <laughs> thanks for sitting down and talking sure, to me. Sure. My today. pleasure. Enjoyed it. And we want to have Evan back in here again because he just provides mm-hmm. such a, a great wealth of information about historical data. So he was telling us about, uh, a little bit earlier, we had been talking to him off to the side about the Dust Bowl, weather's impact on the French Revolution, any number of those historical events. So we told him, well, you, you just got to come back in here and tell us about it, Evan. And actually, uh, today's uh, story that we talked about, the Galveston hurricane, we mentioned this last week. This actually came from a listener's suggestion that we discovered in one of our iTunes reviews. So if there's any kind of like historical event that has significance with the weather that you'd like us to talk about, just email us, accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Well, I'm joined by Dan Kudlowski now, who I uh, we all affectionately hear called Dan K, our hurricane man here who keeps us up to date on the tropics. And uh, Dan, I just wanted to bring you in and find out if there's anything we're keeping an eye on uh, specifically as we head into the weekend. As far as the Atlantic Basin is concerned, we are watching an area of a large area of showers and thunderstorms over the uh, 
western portion of the Caribbean, and uh, this area is going to gradually work its way into the western Gulf of Mexico as we go into the upcoming weekend. There's been a lot of talk and a lot of modeling that have been showing something trying to develop. Uh, the computer models have kind of backed away from something developing. Um, so even if something were to develop, it would probably be very, very weak. So at this point, we don't see anything really substantial. But it will bring an uptick in showers and thunderstorms over south and east Texas. Uh, actually, it's already starting to happen today, and we'll continue to see an uptick in precipitation, especially as we get into the weekend and through early next week. It's just a, a kind of a, change, a pattern change because Texas has been, been under the influence of a large high-pressure area and a lot of uh, uh, dry weather over the last uh, few weeks here. There's been some isolated stuff uh, on occasion, but no concentrated areas of rain. And this is going to be more is going to bring more frequent precipitation to the Lone Star State then. Okay, and we also, uh, you know, I know we've been watching Bud, mm-hmm. which is uh, downgraded now at this right. point in time uh, in the Pacific there, um, and that actually could bring some beneficial rain, right? Exactly. Um, Bud's going to be m- moving inland over the southern Baja. It probably won't even be a tropical storm by now. Uh, if it is, it's, it's going to be very, very weak. More importantly, it's got a large area of high and mid-level moisture that's going to spread northward into the southwest U.S., and especially over eastern Arizona and across most of New Mexico, northward up into northern U- uh, eastern Utah, Colorado, and maybe, maybe all the way up into uh, Montana over the weekend. So that whole area is going to see an uptick in clouds, showers, and thunderstorms. Now, the initial thunderstorms that break out ahead of this may be dry thunderstorms, meaning they may not have enough moisture to produce rainfall, but they will produce lightning. So that is a little bit of a concern. But fires are now occurring over parts of like southwestern Colorado and parts of the southwest. Uh, this is going to really help out because this is going to bring moisture into those areas. And even though there, some areas may not have real concentrated ra- areas of rain, uh, there might be enough uh, precipitation to douse the fires or at least give firefighters a, a good chance. Now, on the other side of that coin as well is where moisture pools in some of the valley areas and up against the mountainous areas, there could be some uh, enough rain to cause some flash flooding. Because a lot of places, it only takes about half inch to an inch of rain to produce flash flooding uh, in some of those areas in the southwest. So we're also telling people, yeah, beneficial rains, but also it could come on very hard and there could be some isolated downpours which could cause that flash flooding. And then the southwest will sort of calm down with its precipitation pattern and most of this moisture will become more concentrated like over Montana, Wyoming, uh, maybe uh, Idaho area along through there. And that area may become quite active during the second half of the upcoming weekend. You know, we hear a lot of talk about the Atlantic storms, but then not so much all the time about the Pacific storm. So I wanted to ask you, are we less concerned about tropical development off the East Pacific coast as opposed to the Atlantic? Not necessarily because the the media tends to focus on the Atlantic Basin because obviously there's a lot more people involved, especially in the United States. We look very, very carefully at the uh, East Pacific. In fact, we're looking at another area of disturbed weather about 370 miles off the coast of Acapulco to the southwest of Acapulco. And that area, if that, that, that looks very unsettled and we're worried about that might try to ramp up over the next two or three days. Uh, and that could become maybe a tropical uh, depression, perhaps a tropical storm before it moves inland over southern Mexico. But uh, at this point, uh, again, we are looking out there very, very, uh, very well. And we're also looking at the central Pacific, too, around Hawaii. 
we keep a very close eye on that. And since water temperatures around Hawaii are so warm, we're more concerned about that happening this year, and especially since we will be going into probably an El Nino as we get into July or uh, September, but sometime between July and September. And usually when we go into an El Nino, that favors tropical development in and around the Hawaiian Islands. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for uh, talking to us and keeping us up to date, Dan. Okay. And for more detailed information, if you're interested in finding out about Dan's 2018 hurricane forecast, you can head to AccuWeather.com. Next week, we've got a great show coming up. Uh, You know, my favorite podcast, Andy, are Mm weather-related and also crime Uh, podcasts. So we combine them both in this one. Yes, we did. If you are a fan of the show Forensic Files, you may remember an episode uh, featuring AccuWeather's very own forensic meteorologist, Dr. Joe Sobel. And he's going to be joining us on the show to talk about the case from that episode of Forensic Files and a little bit about forensic meteorology and everything that goes into it. It's going to be, I'm, I can't wait for this interview. I know. I think it's going to be a great one. So tune in next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.